Welcome to the Central Church of Christ podcast. We are located at 3501 Cheviot Avenue, Cincinnati, Ohio, 45211. It is our mission to worship God and follow Jesus as we love and serve in His name through the power of the Holy Spirit. Come see us sometime at 1030 on a Sunday morning or each Wednesday as we feed the community at 530 p.m. We hope the following message inspires you in some way. Our dear God, uh, we come to you um, on a beautiful um, late winter uh, morning. Thank you for bringing the sun up uh, this morning for warmer temperatures. Uh, and the prayer this morning, God, is simple. Uh, our prayer is this, um, that when you speak, uh, we will listen. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Here, highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. What kind of a peace do I mean, and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana, enforced on the world, by American weapons of war, not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living, the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children, not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women, not merely peace in our time, but peace in all time. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. Um, speeches. Uh, an ancient uh, oratory device aimed at challenging um, and um, affirming a position by imparting information uh, through the spoken word. Uh, and in many ways, a good speech uh, takes on the persona um, of a uh, historian uh, who seeks to interpret uh, the, uh, the impact of past events on present circumstances. And uh, I thought it was a good way to kind of introduce this morning's um, uh, message uh, with the idea of speeches. Uh, that are familiar to us because this morning in Acts 2, what we have is a speech, essentially, in Peter's sermon uh, at Pentecost, um, where Peter is standing before the crowd uh, and speaking to them. And um, again, speeches are so much more um, than um, just words. Uh, and the idea that, you know, for Lincoln, uh, the, the intent. So for Lincoln, uh, the Gettysburg Address was intentionally meant to open up a cemetery, but it was much more than that. Uh, for Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address was able to give context and purpose to the events of a nation uh, bearing the scars of civil war. Uh, Kennedy's address at American University was more than a commencement speech. It was a uh, plea 
uh, for peace in a world under the threat of nuclear war. And uh, for King, uh, his speech uh, was more than just a sightseeing trip to the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, it was a speech that um, awoken uh, its nation's um, awareness to the need for justice and helped to redefine its understanding of um, itself and its constitution. So again, speeches are so much more uh, than just words. Um, and uh, the same is true for Peter this morning. Uh, for Peter, uh, his speech today, his sermon, is not just a defense against the perceived uh, drunkenness of the crowd. Uh, there were a lot of people criticizing the crowd of Pentecost for either being drunk or just delirious. Uh, but Peter's sermon is much more than that. It's, not, it's more than just giving a defense of um, the people, uh, the believers. Uh, Peter's speech at Pentecost intends to expound upon uh, the meaning of the gospel and its impact not only on believers, but its impact on the world. Uh, and that's the speech that we have this morning uh, in Acts 2. Now, it should be noted uh, that Acts 2 uh, has some 28 speeches in it. Um, a lot of it is in narrative form, but there's also a lot of people speaking out uh, to crowds, to the authorities. Uh, so there's a lot of speeches that are in Acts themselves. Um, and again, uh, the most famous speech is the one that we're covering today in Acts 2, where Peter delivers his sermon at Pentecost. Um, and... Um, you get a sense with Peter, and actually with all of the apostles, that there is this sense of urgency for them, that they're not going to have long to speak uh, before the authorities try to shut them down. So he gets right to the heart of it. Right in the opening part, he uh, uh, gets to who he's addressing in this speech, where he says, fellow Israelites, um, listen to this. And as a Jew himself, uh, Peter stands... Uh, to address a crowd that's composed of fellow Jews like himself, um, both familiar uh, with his Old Testament quotations in this speech, uh, specifically Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. We'll get to that. Uh, but also, uh, his crowd is definitely filled with uncertainty um, as internal and external struggles in, in, the, in the body um, threaten to undermine their faith uh, and their confidence in God. So there's a lot of reason for doubt, for fear, uh, that, uh, that uh, Peter is trying to address as well in his speech. Um, and then um, after identifying uh, his audience, Peter establishes um, the foundation of the apostles' teaching uh, that um, the, uh, the believers will devote themselves to in later in verse 42 in Acts 2. Uh, I've always found it interesting that uh, Acts 42 just says the apostles' teaching. It doesn't get any, to any specifics in that verse. It just, it's a very generic, they've devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. Uh, well, through uh, preparing for this sermon, I realized that that's what Peter's doing. He's laying out the apostles' teaching in his speech. And that's what we're going to review today, is uh, the core tenets of the apostles' teaching uh, at Pentecost. And... Um, First, um, the apostles' teaching uh, makes us aware of Christ's innocence. Um, there, when Peter says in verse 22 and 23, uh, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God uh, by miracles, wonders, and signs, uh, which God did among you, uh, through you, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan 
and for knowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him uh, to the cross. So, uh, this is definitely a core aspect that Christ was completely innocent when he was crucified. Um, and the guilt is on us. Uh, and there's no way of escaping that. And, we have, and that has to be dealt with. That guilt, that sin has to be dealt with. It can't just be laid uh, unaddressed. But thankfully, uh, Peter moves right in uh, to the second part of um, the, the apostles' teaching here. And uh, the idea that um, Christ's victory um, over our guilt. Uh, so first we have that Christ is innocent, uh, but then also Christ is victorious. Uh, that's the second aspect of the apostles' teaching here in, in Acts 2, is that Christ is victorious over our guilt. When Peter declares, uh, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And I know for myself, uh, this aspect of the apostles' teaching has been monumental in my own life, um, for sure. Uh, because uh, Christ's victory uh, gives us freedom. Uh, not only a freedom from sin and death, but a freedom from fear. And like a good historian, uh, Peter supports this radical claim with a primary source. And again, that's Psalm 16, uh, where David's encounter with the Lord takes away his fear uh, because he trusts the Lord will not abandon him uh, to the dead or will let his body see decay. Um, and therefore, um, as recipients of uh, Christ's victory, uh, we join Acts 2.24 uh, to advise death that you have the power to take those that we dearly love, but you have no authority to keep them. That's a massive teaching of Acts 2. Um, because those that we love dearly, uh, they trusted that. They knew that, yes, death has a presence in this world. Uh, it can take them, but it does not keep them. Uh, that authority belongs to Jesus Christ alone. And that's what Peter's trying to say here, is that, yes, uh, death encounters us. It, it can frustrate us, but it has no dominion over us. It does not keep us. Um, and therefore, um, again, for my own life, it has taught me that um, if God's will moves forward, I can move forward. Uh, if God's victory cannot be undone, then neither can ours. And again, that's a very uh, powerful teaching here in Acts 2. Uh, second, uh, a part of, uh, besides freedom, Christ's victory also um, imparts responsibility that Peter mentions here when he talks about, um, about being a witness. Uh, there's a responsibility that comes involved with being a witness uh, for Christ. Um, and unlike Luke, uh, Peter is not some reporter in the courtroom gallery. Uh, Peter is called to the witness stand uh, to testify to what he has seen and heard. He is called to testify to what it was like to see uh, Thomas touch the wounds of Jesus. He's called to testify what it was like to eat breakfast with the resurrected Jesus. Peter is called to testify to what it was like to see Jesus go up into heaven. Um, and um, 
with being a witness, I thought uh, that there were three important characteristics uh, that all, all good witnesses should, should have. And the first is a duty to integrity, a duty that compels a person to uh, display behavior consistent with what they believe, um, whether spiritually or morally. Uh, free of duplicity, uh, a good witness understands their credibility depends on aligning their thoughts and words with their actions. Uh, that makes a good witness. Uh, second, a good witness feels an obligation to honesty. Uh, and while honesty is often associated with integrity, uh, we must remember that even compulsive liars can have integrity. If, if they keep lying, even, even liars can have integrity if they keep with the lie that they're going with. So it's a little bit different, uh, integrity and honesty. Uh, a good witness uh, and their obligation to honesty prompts them uh, to uphold facts, no matter how unpopular, uh, to advocate transparency, no matter how uncomfortable, um, and to champion fairness, um, no matter how uh, unsafe. And uh, finally, as far as being a good witness, a good witness uh, has a commitment to courage. Uh, you have to be courageous when you're a witness. Um, a commitment that causes a person to muster the strength uh, he or she needs to persevere in the face of danger, fear, or difficulty. And uh, the four speakers that we heard this morning at the beginning of the service, I think certainly recognized the need for courage uh, when acting as a witness. Um, and uh, youth group kids, history, uh, check. Besides being great speakers, what do these four have in common? What other facts do these four share besides being great speakers? If you can see it. Sorry, who said that? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, all of these gentlemen were executed uh, for what they said. Um, whether as they were as a witness to history or a witness to the gospel, they understood that there were risks involved in telling what people needed to hear, but they said it anyway. And if you were my age, you have already outlived King. Um, if you are David's age, you have outlived Kennedy. So again, these were young guys. Uh, but they, again, they all understood that being a witness uh, comes with uh, costs. There were, there's a reason why we have witness protection programs in our culture, because people are afraid of the truth, and they will do whatever they can to keep the truth silent. And it's the same for us. Now, hopefully, the consequences aren't as severe for us, but there is cost at being a witness. So again, we need to be courageous uh, when being a witness. And then uh, also, besides freedom and responsibility, uh, here in Acts 2.33, we understand that victory comes with power. Uh, and specifically, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter talks about in verse 33 when he says, uh, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out uh, what you see now and hear. Um, and it is with this power that the Holy Spirit gives us uh, that not only does it lay the foundation upon which uh, the church is built, but it also uh, provides the justification for our right to be in that uh, community. Um, that's the power that we have in the Holy Spirit. Um, 
And whereas our uh, once uh, fragmented and seemingly futile lives uh, were, uh, the Spirit now comes and gives us purpose uh, to that life. Um, and through God's word, uh, the Spirit calls us for the purpose of helping uh, to bring about God's divine goal of community uh, where everyone is living in harmony with each other, with creation, and with God himself. That is our purpose. Uh, uh, we, there is no need to, uh, to be apathetic or to wonder what we should be, do, be, out, be out doing because the Spirit tells us what we're to be about doing. And again, that is to be in harmony with each other, with the earth in which we live, and again, with God uh, himself. And with its power made available to us, uh, the Spirit gives us the strength and the ability to do that. Because all of us know that that's exhausting work. Uh, but the Spirit gives us that power and that strength to do so. And also teaches us uh, what to believe and how to act. All of that uh, does not come um, from Chris's guidebook on how to live uh, the Christian life. It comes from the Spirit. Um, and, um, and this is what I love about the Spirit most of all is that... Um, the Spirit uh, gives us perspective. And where past sins and previous failures defined our existence, uh, the Spirit changes that perspective. And yes, the sun rises and the sunset, they mark our days, but it's the power of the Spirit that gives us the past, present, and the future, um, which I think is really important uh, to know. Uh, because without the Spirit, we could not recognize our old life from the new life that we have. Without the Spirit, there is no distinguishing between our past uh, hostility with God and our present salvation. It's the Spirit that opens our eyes to that reality. Um, and then one other aspect of the Apostles' teaching that we want to get to today is uh, the certainty of Christ's sovereignty uh, that he talks about in verses 34 and 35. And again, Peter looks to David in Psalm 110, uh, to validate that assertion by portraying Christ's supremacy over the enemies that he makes his footstool. And therefore, Peter declares in verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, Lord and Messiah. Uh, and as Paul attests to later in Philippians 2, that we talked about last year, uh, Peter's confession of Christ that Jesus is Lord in Acts 2 dramatically uh, alters the priorities of believers who make that same confession. Uh, and, while processing, and, while, and while the process of putting Jesus above uh, our devotion or loyalty to any other person, group, or thing, uh, it's not impossible. Uh, I understand it's, it's difficult, but again, it's not impossible because we have the Spirit to help us do that. Um, and uh, Consequently, uh, any suitor, whether it be celebrity, uh, commercialism, uh, even patriotism, now belong under uh, Christ and his lordship, if only for the fact that none of them give meaning to the universe, nor any, can any of them save us from destruction. Um, Christ alone gives meaning and purpose to our, our universe. And Christ alone is what saves us from total annihilation. Um, and again, that is what it means when Christ is made Lord and Messiah uh, for us.
Now, at the end of any great speech, um, I'm sure the crowd before Peter was no different, and they were asking themselves, what am I supposed to do uh, with the information that I've been given? Um, and I'm sure Steve will address uh, the crowd's response uh, to Peter next week. Um, but for now, uh, I want to end our time this morning by focusing on the importance of the plea of uh, Peter at the beginning of, of his sermon, uh, where he says, fellow Israelites. I want to focus on this plea uh, right here, the plea to listen. Because um, I think um, the need to listen, I think, grows uh, more and more apparent uh, the more time we spend on social media or we watch the evening news. Um, regrettably, our culture seems to relish the opportunity to say whatever, whatever thought comes in our mind, no matter how ridiculous uh, it feels like. And more and more, our cultural problem rests in the inability to stop yelling long enough to listen. And that's what I want to focus on as we uh, conclude this morning. Um, and why does our culture seem more prone to yell than to listen? Well, I think the first obstacle uh, that gets in our way uh, of our ability to listen or our willingness to listen uh, is in the uh, normalcy of self-centeredness in the culture itself. Because um, when you're concerned solely with personal desires, needs, or interests, uh, we will likely tune out everything and everyone around us in pursuit of those needs and desires. And yes, self-centeredness is evident in our culture. Uh, it needs to be said that it is nowhere in the apostles' teaching when you read it. Uh, in fact, uh, the apostles' teaching in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us to go in the opposite way of self-centeredness. Uh, when it describes going in the way of love. Because love, as Paul says, is patient, it is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it, is, does, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. So therefore, it is self-giving love, not narcissistic self-absorption uh, that is proof of the Spirit. Uh, inside of us that was poured out at Pentecost. And if we could attach an, an addendum to 1 Corinthians 13, then I would think we could also say uh, that love also takes the time to listen. Love is, listening is evidence of love, in other words. Now the second obstacle uh, to uh, our ability or our willingness to listen is uh, this idea of self-righteousness. Because uh, when, when, when someone is supremely convinced of their own righteousness over and against the actions of others, uh, they will probably turn a deaf ear uh, to anything or anyone who tries to convince them otherwise. And again, um, while self-righteousness can be uh, rampant in our culture, again, it is nowhere in the apostles' teachings. And this was actually the uh, problem that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians uh, 3 when he reprimands those believers uh, in verse 3 saying, Are you still worldly? Uh, for since you, there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? And of course, uh, spiritual elitism can come in many forms, uh, whether it be boasting in spiritual gifts, 
uh, gloating in your knowledge of the Bible, uh, reveling in doctrine, uh, correctness. Uh, but regardless, um, uh, the spiritual elitism inhibits our ability to listen uh, when our spiritual concerns uh, fracture and divide uh, one another into special interest groups, uh, drowning each other out. Um, quarreling amongst uh, believers um, is, uh, only, only reveals our concerns for what they are, and it's worldly concerns. Um, and it's also not the, the attitude or behavior of um, those filled with the Spirit uh, when we quarrel like over, over those things. And again, therefore, um, the Apostles' teaching, I think, would prescribe self-sacrificing unity uh, to combat uh, the self-righteousness that rises up sometimes. And again, it is self-sacrificing unity that is the real measure of spiritual maturity um, in the body with the Spirit in them. Um, and again, um, just as self-centeredness and love go their different directions, so self-righteousness goes a different way of the cross, I think is what Paul is also trying to say. They go in two different directions. Um, so I think maybe perhaps the best way to uh, listen better is to be more willing to admit to myself uh, that I am not the center of my own universe. Um, I think the best way for me to listen better is to confess that I am not the author of my own salvation. Um, and only then am I able to ask, well, then who or what should I be listening to? And that's where we want to kind of wrap up today. And first, I think those who devote themselves to the apostle te teachings listen to God's children. Because um, uh, there's nothing more tragic uh, than, I think, what's get lo what gets lost in the noise of arguing. And when we're bombarded by the noise of shouting, we lose the opportunity to hear solutions to our problems. Uh, we lose the chance to hear apologies uh, for our transgressions. And I think worst of all, we miss out hearing about hopes uh, for our future when we bicker and when we argue. Um, second, of course, uh, we listen to uh, God's word uh, as uh, Psalm 119 does. Um, and uh, for Psalm 119, uh, listening to God's word was a way of life. Uh, because of its life-enhancing power, uh, Psalm 119 realizes that the word needs to be read aloud so that other people can hear it. It's one thing to read it, but also people need to hear it. So that's why we read scripture in our service, so that people can hear God's word uh, being spoken out loud because of its power. And after having heard its content, uh, Psalm 119 sees God's word as not only a cause for praise, uh, but also as a source of comfort and protection in times of struggle and in heartache. And then lastly, of course, uh, those who uh, devote themselves uh, to the apostle teaching listen to God's son. Uh, and this is evident in Matthew 5 for sure, uh, where Jesus uh, makes those several, um, you have heard it said statements, but I say to you statements. Um, and, of course, just because Jesus um, is the authority doesn't mean we throw away the law of the prophets either. Uh, Jesus is not trying to do that. He's not trying to d diminish their impact at all. He's trying to expand it uh, into a way of life that demands more than just promises not to kill. Because I think we can all do that pretty easily. I mean, I think, like, 
I'm on board with that. Yeah, I, I, I can promise not to do that. Pledging, however, to abstain from anger, that, that's, that's not as easy uh, for me. Uh, because, of course, there's a connection between anger and murder, right? It, it's what leads to that. Um, so, um, this, as, we, as we close this morning, um, I pray that we can take time to consider both the apostles' teaching and Peter's plea to listen. And may our considerations uh, transform the manner in which we interact with God, with our world, and with each other. Because I think we would all agree uh, that yelling and bickering isn't getting our world anywhere. Nor does it bring God's kingdom any closer when we do that. Um, and um, so the question uh, that we can start to ask, ask ourselves uh, this week is, you know, um, the momentum that we need to pull back uh, the world from disaster uh, resides in uh, united Christian and brothers uh, petitioning their neighbors to hear the apostles' teaching about God's Son, who being completely innocent gave his life for those of us who were profoundly guilty. Um, the catalyst we need to keep from sinking into the abyss of chaos rests in faithful believers coming together to implore classmates and uh, co-workers to listen to the apostles' teaching um, that freedom and power are made available to those who are recipients of Christ's victory. The impetus we need uh, to stop our world from careening off the cliff of catastrophe depends upon committed believers asking themselves if they are willing to heed the apostles' teaching in regards to the uh, preeminence of God's sovereignty over all other passions and pursuits. Um, and um, there's something about when you hit turn 40 uh, where you start to uh, think a lot about the kind of world you want to leave for the generation behind you. And so over the last two years, I've thought a lot about, you know, what, do the, what is the world that I want for George, for Laseho, and for Opal? What do I want that to be, to look like? Um, because I think we can admit that there will always be catastrophe, there will always be chaos, but I think we, can, I think we have an ability to, to minimize that. So there's not as much as there could be. So I think a lot, a lot about that a lot. Um, what do we want uh, for our children and our grandchildren? And if, if it is our sincere desire that they have less uh, chaos than we do, if they have less catastrophe than we do, then I want to encourage in three, three, three things as we close today. First, let us not race to verbalize shame. Let's, let's, not, let's not try to win that race. Um, that's not one thing we're trying to do. Uh, second, let's not be in a hurry to articulate vengeance. Let's, let's, not, let's not be a part of that. Uh, let's slow ourselves down.